This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode of Nordic Nation, we speak all things trail design with John Morton. Based in Vermont and global in perspective, Morton provides insight into the literal ups and downs of trail design and how full-blown Nordic centers and small-scale trails can bring a modern vibe to an old-school sport. He runs Morton Trails locally, as we said, in Vermont, but has global reach with projects based in China. So let's get a little rundown. Uh, where where are you? Well, who are you? And if you can give a brief intro, and where are you based? Sure. Well, um, I, I live in Thetford, Vermont, which is a, a small town uh, just on the western side of the Connecticut River. It was a convenient uh, commute for me uh, years ago when I, I coached the Dartmouth ski team for 11 years. So uh, I... Uh, before that, I, I lived for 10 years in Alaska, where I was assigned um, in the military to the biathlon training center. And then uh, when I got out of the Army, I was offered a job teaching um, and coaching in a high school in Anchorage. Uh, then, then in uh, 1978, I, I was offered the uh, coaching job at Dartmouth. And I did that until 19... Uh, 89. And, uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do after that. I, I, I'd, um, you know, I had a couple of other coaching offers, but my wife and daughter were not interested in leaving the place that we have here in, in, um, Vermont. So, um, I, I, uh, you know, scratched around for a year or so. I was a interim program director for the biathlon association, but that meant commuting from Thetford for where we live to uh, Burlington a couple of times a week. And that was, that was a bit of a haul. So uh, I, I kind of lucked into this um, trail design work and uh, I had the good fortune early on. Um, I don't have any professional background in it um, other than the fact that through my racing and um, coaching career, I, I had skied, a lot of places throughout the world. Um, I was, I was on the biathlon team from uh, 19, the fall of 1968 until um, uh, the spring of uh, 1976 after the Innsbruck Olympics. And, uh, and so I, I'd seen a lot of ski trails and, and competed on many of them and coached on others. And, and so I had a sense of at least what I liked uh, in terms of uh, ski venues. And, and that, that was the basis for um, what has become, uh, you know, a, a, a small um, trail design consulting business that I've operated since about 1990. So that's kind of the basis of, how I got into it, I'd, I'd be the first to admit that it was, you know, it was, was not something that, that I had ever thought about in terms of a career. We, I just kind of lucked into it. And one of the, uh, I, uh, this may have been where you were going with, with your question, but I, I was very fortunate early on in that um, not too long after I, I started uh, this little design business, um, two friends of mine, Max Cobb, whom I'd coached at Dartmouth and, and had then, he then became, um, an employee of the U S biathlon association and worked his way quickly up into a leadership position there. He and, and, uh, another friend of mine, Andy Shepard from, um, Yarmouth, Maine, who had been in, in charge of the winter sports, uh, products at LL Bean. They, they had both, uh, been talking about this uh, situation that they'd observed in in sort of different ways. Max Cobb had, had noticed this phenomenon at the elite level of biathlon in Europe, and Andy had noticed it. Uh, his he had a son Walt who was a a top high school skier in Maine, and what they realized was that there there were two things that happened. 
were happening sort of concurrently. One was that the, the snow cover was becoming less and less predictable in, you know, more temperate parts of what used to be the snow belt. In other words, Southern Maine and where, where they lived in, where um, the shepherds lived in Yarmouth, they traditionally had a strong ski team, but in recent years, they, they just had uh, real trouble with natural snow. And, and Max had noticed the same thing in Central Europe and even parts of Southern Scandinavia. They typically, you know, they would have a big uh, event in Oslo, Holmenkollen every year, but more frequently that was challenged by uh, the you know lack of natural adequate natural snowfall and then they also noticed sort of concurrently with this that there were fewer and fewer top world-class competitors coming from some of the traditional places like oslo or stockholm or helsinki and more and more of the 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 medal winners or the, those on the podium were coming from further and further north. And uh, Max had noted that some of the, the best Norwegians were coming from, you know, in the far north. And they determined that part of that was weather-related, but another part of it was that they, they were still, you know, the, the cultures up there were a little different, that they were tough, and, and people were accustomed to hard work and... Uh, you know, the challenges of climate. And so they put those, they were thinking about these two things at a time when um, Andy's son, Walt, was competing in the state championships and they were held in Fort Kent, Maine, which is, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, it's about as far north as you can go in the continental United States. And, and what they observed was that while uh, Yarmouth, Maine had been bare ground for weeks, Fort Kent still had abundant snow, and the kids up there were really tough, and that they competed on a really tough course, and the, the kids from southern Maine were just outclassed. because, and, and so both Max and Andy said, you know, we, we ought to try to capitalize on this and somehow create an interest in Nordic skiing uh, back in the, in Northern Maine. So I got recruited into it and the three of us went and made a proposal to a big um, charitable foundation in Portland. And ultimately um, I think we got a, the first, the first uh, let's say contribution was, was a million six to reestablish Nordic skiing as a lifestyle in Northern Maine both to stimulate the, the youth and to um, energize the local economy. And, and those two guys, Andy and Max, had this vision, which I, I have to admit I was a little skeptical about at the time, but Andy said that if, if we got the support from this Libra Foundation, he, he would basically guarantee there would be a... Um, a winter Olympian coming from a rustic County, Maine within a decade. And I'm thinking, Whoa, that's, you know, that's putting it all on the line here. And, but the long and short of it is, I don't know if you, you're familiar at all with the Maine winter sports center, but he, they pulled it off. They did it. And, and I had the terrific good fortune of having the job of, okay, you, you design a, a ski trail out the back of every, um, middle school or elementary school or high school in a rustic county that is backed up to a woodlot or a um, you know public land or park or so I in right out of the right pretty much out of the starting gate within a few years after I, I started this little trail design business I had something like uh, more than a dozen trails to design and you know, sort of oversee the construction of in, in Aristic County, including two world-class competition venues that ultimately held biathlon world championships or world cups. That gave me a, that gave me my little business, a real jump start. And, and to be really candid about it, you know, I learned a tremendous amount, uh, just doing all that work, um, 
you know, sort of, right. I wasn't, I wasn't standing around waiting for where the next job was going to come from. I had a list of, I think at one point, as I say, maybe a dozen communities in, um, in Aroostook County that, okay, as soon as I get the, the trail done behind Caribou high school, I've got to move up to Stockholm and, and do the one behind the stock Stockholm middle school. And then I've got to move up to, you know, Van Buren and find something there and, and to limestone and do something there. So it was a, it was a terrific good fortune, I guess I, I would say. And then from there, uh, you know, I, 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 I just, um, I, I guess it, because the Nordic ski world is a, is a pretty small, um, you know, fairly tight knit community. Uh, the word got out people that had discovered the trails in Northern Maine liked them. And I got calls from basically places all over the country and, uh, eventually beyond the country. I did the trail for the world university games in uh, korea in 19 i guess it was 97 and i've done two projects in uh, china now or completed one and another one is on hold temporarily but um so it's you know it's been great i've been very fortunate what would it, you know so this is kind of interesting you know thinking of like your fingerprint what would have been like how would you have described a morton trail back when you were first starting out and building those, um, you know, trail systems in the back of the high schools to, and maybe like think separate from a, a, you know, a kind of a fist homologated course, because that obviously has to have like very strict parameters. You know, how might that differ from a Morton trail today and what your signature may or may not look like? Yeah. Well, great question. And, uh, you know, it would be fun to hear what some of the uh, athletes uh, say about it, but, I, I guess in the simplest um, terminology, I would say that I try to make the climbs uh, manageable. In other words, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of gut buster, killer hill, because I, I don't think that that um, serves the sport well. Because when you stop to think about it, even a course like the ones up in Northern Maine, or I did a competition venue uh, not too long ago in, in Casper, Wyoming. Um, I've, I've done a number of, I'm doing one right now at Paul Smith's college in uh, upstate New York. Yep. And when you stop and think about it, these trails are going to be used by recreational skiers probably 80% of the time. And maybe 20% of the time, They'll be used by elite skiers uh, under competition conditions. And the reality is we don't, we don't have the luxury in this con- country to say, okay, this is going to be a course just for elite skiers uh, the two or three times that we're going to host races this winter. I mean, we've got to, we've got to make the, the courses um, available to and, and ideally enjoyable to a wide range of people. And I, my contention is you can meet the FIS standards and still have it ski well. I mean, obviously the racers are going are gonna to go harder and go faster, but it doesn't mean that you have to have absolutely crippling, um, you know, killer hills on, on all of these courses. I, there was, I had an enjoyable story from um, a, a World Cup event that was hosted in Presque Isle on, on the course I designed there. And uh, I arrived up there just pretty much to observe and help out as a low-level volunteer. And uh, I, I um, watched the athletes training, and I was sort of curious to see how they were going to take the course. And it, it had a couple of what what you were getting at earlier sort of what I would call signature downhills. I like, I like technical descents. I think it's a waste of time and enjoyment to just have some long, boring, straight descent. I, I feel like the, the descents should be fun, but they, it's okay to have them be technically challenging where, you know, a, a, a better athlete has an opportunity to make up time if they're 
if they're proficient on the descents. So uh, I, I encountered uh, the, the leading biathlete uh, at the time, Martin Foucard from, from France. And I said, hey, tell me, what do you think of the course? And, and he said, ah, too easy. Too easy. It would never, it would never stand up as a, as a World Cup course in Europe. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's just too easy. And, and I said, well, it meets all the FIS homologation standards. Of course, you know, it's different for, for IBU and FIS, but yeah, yeah, no, too easy. I said, okay, well, and I, you know, I was disappointed, but, and I didn't tell him who I was or that I designed the course. I just kind of thought, well, maybe I'm, you know, too old fashioned and I've got to, you know, acknowledge that the sport has progressed and I've got to recognize if I'm designing a, a world caliber course, it's got to be tougher. The next day was the men's 20 K individual, which Foucault won. And I walked by this, uh, this press room where he was giving an interview to, to some TV stations from Portland. And I, so I just, you know, snuck in the, the door and stood there and watched as he was giving his interview. A, a commentator um, was then asked him, well, what do you think of our facility here? What, what do you think of the course? And he goes, oh, mon Dieu, I start yesterday in training. I think this is easy. This is this course is nothing like we ski in Europe. But you know what? When you're racing, there is no rest. You can make time everywhere on this course. There is no place for resting. It's terrific. And I thought to myself, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's, that's, that is interesting. Um, it makes me think, like, when you are, you know, if you're designing a course, and obviously, I mean, you sort of, got ahead of me a little bit, but like, I, I, like you, you obviously need to speak to both the recreational skier. And if a venue is planning on holding elite level races, you need to think of those skiers as well. But when you are say designing a course that might host high level events, who, who are your go-tos, you know, in terms of people to push ideas around as to whether or not it might meet, like, as you mentioned, like a Foucault standard, like an elite level racer yeah. standard. Do you have people that you go to and bounce ideas off of um, who might know a particular landscape? Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Um, you know, this project I just mentioned to you at, at Paul Smith's college in, in the Adirondacks, that's where um, Tim Burke grew up. And, mm-hmm. and he, he, when I first was asked to participate on the project, the first call I made was to Tim Burke. And I said, Hey, they're, they're, they're planning to, to do some real significant renovations of the trails at Paul Smith's and nobody knows that terrain like you. Do you can we collaborate on this? And, uh, because I'd love to pick your brains about, you know, where the good terrain is and, and, you know, just even things like, he would know in, intuitively or instinctively if one of the proposed sites for the biathlon range was, was in an area that was, um, you know, notoriously windy, for example, which I wouldn't know because I, I haven't been there. I, I don't, you know, I, you can sort of guess. You can look at a site and say, whoa, where's the wind come from? And, you know, how is it in the wintertime? But he would know that. So it turns out, I mean, he was happy to, collaborate on it he had some tremendous ideas right out of the starting gate even to the point of where where the start finish stadium range penalty loop should be located he was absolutely right on the money and then you know i designed the trails to meet the fis standards he came back at at one point to look at them and sent me an email and he said they're awesome that's great and so it was that kind of a collaboration that um you know, I, I'm, I love doing, uh, Max Cobb is another one that, that I frequently contact in the past. Um, well in 2002 at, the um, Salt Lake Olympics, I was chief of course for the biathlon events and John Alberg was, was the chief of all the Nordic events. He was the overall administrator of all of the Nordic 
skiing at Soldier Hollow. And so we, we became, you know, I wouldn't say we were best friends or anything, but we, we became acquainted at that time. And so there have been a couple of times. He's now the head of homologation for the FIS. And so I, I have written to him um, more than once and said, hey, you know, just asking his advice on, on, on different uh, projects or, you know, particular issues. Yeah. So, and I know he was, all, you know, I know he's been all around the globe um, and he was based in Oslo back at the Holmenkollen for some period of time. But that's it. I'm kind of curious. Did Have you ever, well, I'm sure you have, but like, let's take a venue like um, the Holmenkollen when you, and it's, it, it obviously has been renovated, I think, prior to the 2011 World Champs. That's just yep. off the top of my head yep. there. Uh, but it's an old venue, or historically it's an old venue, and you know, you can go there and you can ski the old 50K course and, you know, winding through the woods. But thinking about the newer venue um, and the newer courses where, you know, you have those, there's those long slogging, I mean, they're pretty burly climbs. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts on that venue and how that uh, one plays out and who it may or may not favor in terms of an athlete and how it it seems to be holding up quite well? Yeah. So, so here's my take on that is, is that the sport, you have to realize the sport is evolving right and the and the kind of things i you asked earlier and what kind of when i got started what kind of trails did i like well i i grew up classic skiing and i loved i loved classic skiing and you know i was able to to make the transition and i i skate uh, and i probably skate as much as i classic ski now just because i don't have to hassle with a kick wax but um, but, but, um, it's, you know, the sport has evolved and, and there are parts of it where I, I really, um, regret that, that, uh, you know, I, you said you grew up in the East, right? Where about, where'd you grow up? Grew up in West Suffield, Connecticut and skied up outside of Rutland in Vermont. That's where my, my mom's okay. family is from Rutland. Okay. So. Yeah, you know, when I was just getting into skiing, the the, the epicenter here in the east was was Putney, Vermont, mm-hmm. yep. and the Putney Putney Trail back in those days was in many many places through the woods. It was so narrow that you had to anticipate well well in advance where you were going to try to track somebody because you, you there just wasn't room to right going through the trees. You you, you had two two tracks set in the snow by a snow machine. And that was it. Um, and to me, there's a certain charm in that, but I recognize with the skating technique with, with, um, an effort to have more mass start and pursuit start races to give the spectators more to see and understand. And, um, with snowmaking, uh, and, the unpredictable natural snowfalls. There, there are a number of reasons why we've had to go to wider trails. And I regret that some of the trails end up looking like interstates because mm-hmm. it's a whole different feel than what we probably grew up with. But you, you have to acknowledge that some of those changes are, are necessary. And I certainly support the concept of, having more mass start races. I mean, I, I understand why there's a, there's a real um, interest and motivation to make Nordic skiing um, better television, better for spectators. Um, make it, there's a, you know, there's a great illustration in that in Europe, biathlon is the most popular winter sport because there's more to see. Yeah, people get excited by what they see at the shooting range. And so we have to, we have to do everything we can to, to give the spectators, whether on TV or in person, more to see more of the excitement of the sport. And um, so, I mean, that, that probably means more mass start races, which means wider trails, which means shorter loops coming back through the stadium, or at least within sight of the stadium. Uh, and I think 
you know, your original question about the Holman colon, that's a terrific example of an excellent um, effort to modernize, make, make the, the venue uh, contemporary with the sport. That I, I, I was absolutely blown away when I saw the athletes in, in a biathlon, well, it was the biathlon world championships of probably three years ago, three or four years ago. And they ski up behind the target line. I mean, that's uh, who in the world would have thought of that, but they've got these big glass plates protecting the athletes, but it's obviously all for the benefit of the spectators to give the spectators more to see. And I mean, it was a very, I would say creative, uh, almost daring, um, concept, but it works great. I mean, I, I was in the stands, uh, hearing them cheering their brains out for Susan Dunkley. It was super. What do you, you know, it's interesting cause that like I, uh, that Oslo course and that situation is kind of an interesting, you know, if you're a landscape architect or tra- obviously trail designer and you start thinking about like the fusion of, yeah, like you were saying, those tight hardwood, you know, deciduous forest trails where you can't see anybody and they're windy, technical. Um, you can find that around home and, you know, you have to jump off the main courses and you can find those trails. Um, right. I'm kind of curious, like, as you think about designing trails for a collective of, of people, um, not just racers, um, how much more difficult is it? Or maybe it's not. I'm just kind of curious what goes into like designing a more traditional looking and feeling course. Um, I'm making the assumption here again. I'm, I, I know nothing about trail design. I help here locally cut manzanita back quite frequently <laughs> during yeah. the uh, non-snow months, but that's about as technical it gets as it gets. Um, but my question is really, um, how much more difficult is it now to make a more traditional trail in terms of thinking about like limited real estate and holding snow? Yeah. Those are good questions. First of all, don't, don't uh, cut yourself too short because as an experienced skier, you have an intuitive sense of what you like and, you know, maybe what you don't like. And you actually, you, you gave a little bit of a hint of that when, when you first came on the, the call, when you said, you talked about the long, gradual climbs out West. And you're, you're absolutely right about that because so much of the skiing out West is on existing forest service roads. Right. And right. it makes, it makes total sense because they're there and, and it's costly, and, and oftentimes it, it involves a lot of bureaucratic red tape to try to design new trails, you know, purpose-built trails for, for Nordic skiing, especially when you've got all those forest roads that are already there. But, and, and the, ironically, they're becoming more and more like a lot of the top level competitive trails because they are relatively wide and they're, you know, it, it, it has more of the feeling of, of some of the, the more recent, um, uh, top level competition trails. But, you know, I, I have, uh, I think roughly speaking through the years, I've had sort of like three general groups of clients. And one group would be this, what we've been talking about, the top level competition venues, somebody, a a group or organization that knows they want to host major events, whether it be at a college or university or a a community that um, has some sort of a, an affiliation with like, like the ones up in Northern Maine, Fort Kent and Presque Isle. They know that, they want that to be part of their, their town's culture. And, and then I have, um, I have uh, clients that maybe towns or communities or, oh, sometimes re- retirement communities, sometimes office parks, or that, 
they just want a really nice recreational trail, which they would describe as shared use or multi-use year-round. Um, they they might they almost always have walkers. They might have trail runners. In some cases, they they would have uh, mountain biking, but not say with the hardcore single track type mountain biking that you know the more um, let's say the the hardcore mountain biking yeah. would be after, but but more family friendly type mountain biking. And then, of course, skiing and snowshoeing in the wintertime. And they, they have no interest or desire to seek homologation, which makes it easier because you don't have, you know, the required climbs and have to be so concerned about trail widths and so forth. And then um, the third group, which was kind of a surprise to me and, uh, and has been uh, very enjoyable and gratifying through the years are, are private landowners who might have 25 acres or they may have 250 acres and they just want to get out on their property. And some of them are fanatic Nordic skiers and they want a great training loop that they can go out and ski anytime they have adequate snow. Some of them are trail runners. Some of them, I had a guy in Southern Vermont years ago that said, don't, don't feel like you have to get to the high point on the property. The only thing we want is a great trail where we can take our grandchildren out whenever they visit us. Oh, and fun. Yeah. so, we, you know, you have all kinds of different objectives depending on who the clients are. And, and really, the, the most challenging, and in some ways the most re- gratifying, rewarding, and, and fun because it is so challenging are the competition venues because all of these, if, if you're designing a competition venue to accommodate biathlon, FIS cross country and Paralympics, um, if, if you say that, okay, we're going to shoot for two 5k loops, total of 10 kilometers of competitive skiing, you know how many cutoffs you need? Minimum cutoffs for all those, you know, Paralympics, FIS, and biathlon. You need nine different cutoffs within with just within two five k loops. And and of course for for FIS, the homologations all all got to work. A three kilometer loop only needs a twenty five meter climb. But a 3.75 K loop needs um, a 30 meter climb. And so there are all these pieces of the puzzle that have to fit. But, you know, that's that, that both makes it fun if you can ultimately, if, if you can get it all to work. Well, and of course, a lot of it has to do with the terrain that, that's available. And, uh, you know, some places just have this wonderful, this. Paul Smith's, I keep mentioning, they just have terrific terrain. It's just, just all beautiful. It's, you couldn't find anything better in, in Scandinavia. It's just beautiful. But I've also done, you know, some fairly extensive trail projects on one big side hill. And, you know, you have to try to creatively find some way where it doesn't appear to the participant that, okay, we're leaving the start, and for the first half of the outing, all we're doing is climbing. And then we're going to descend all the way back to the start. Yeah, good. Well, I, yeah, I'm kind of curious, like, from the, and let's take that small Paul Smith's uh, landscape or terrain as an example. And I've, we've, we did a story on that. Gosh, I, I know, like, I'm not alone. Like, the past six months feels like five years, so I, I can't even remember when we did this story. But I want to say it was, like, I know they they commissioned. I mean, I know they ran races on the trails system this past winter. That's correct. Yeah, and I think they. Yeah, so I know it was a you know uh, success. It sounds like people were pretty stoked about it. But that said, like take that yep. as an example and maybe extrapolate further to, and you can generalize. But you have you know you're saying this is like ideal terrain landscape. I think it is adjacent to a lake or a large pond. There's some cool natural features there. 
Um, it's in the Adirondacks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What sort of considerations do you have to make in terms of climate change? Um, and thinking about, you know, that particular, I think I've seen some aerial shots of that and I think there's a lot of deciduous trees around, right? So, so they're losing their leaves. Yep. Um, so there's more exposure to sunlight, you know, to all aspects. That's right. Yeah. So the question really is how do you, what are you thinking about in terms of climate change and maintaining snow from the perspective of just natural snow? And then what accommodations do you have to make if they have the budget for snowmaking? Right. Okay, those are both excellent questions. And there, we have a lot of clients that they know at the outset they don't have the funding for, for snowmaking. So one of the issues for them is how to, and, and some of these are, are sort of retrofit type jobs. Like, can you come in and, and look at our current trail system and tell us what we can do to help um, maximize the natural snow that we got, that, that we get. And the kind of issues that, um, you see in those situations are you obviously, and again, it, it de- totally depends on the, the terrain available. Uh, as you've pointed out, the veget the existing vegetation. Um, but you know, a couple of the simple things are, um, you try to avoid, or first of all, find, and then, if necessary, relocate or, or uh, modify any um, places that you know that the trail is oriented directly south and, and is going to get uh, direct sunlight. Where, and, and in general, whoever grooms the trails, they're going to tell, tell you those spots. They're going to say, you know, two and a half Ks out on this loop, the trail turns. And, and we have a descent that, that faces directly south, and we always lose snow there. So, mm-hmm. so you try to find those existing trouble spots and, and somehow, you know, adjust them or, or refine them so that they are not uh, directly in the sunlight as, as they have been in the past. Another thing that is relatively easy and, and inexpensive to accomplish is um, you, you almost always can limb up the trees on the sides of trails. And uh, they have these, you've probably seen them, they have these pole saws that uh, you can extend up 20 feet that have like a chainsaw blade on the end. And, you know, if you just, if you limb up all of the evergreen trees, hemlocks, spruce, white pines, if you limb them up 20 feet, there's a lot more natural snow that's going to reach the ground rather than get hung up in the branches overhanging the trail. And that's, it's relatively easy. Um, another issue that, that, you know, we recommend to, to people is there are some places and you're probably, you've seen them or, or visited them. There's some places that are very conscientious about their trail surface and, you, you can walk on it in the summertime and, it, and it's like a fairway on a golf course. There are other places, however, and in plenty of them where, you know, they're doing, they're doing something else in the summertime. They're not working on this. Yeah. And, uh, that's so funny. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it speaks to me what you're saying. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's understandable. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. Uh, one of the places I love to go skiing is Mount St. Anne in Quebec. They're, it, they've got a wonderful trail network. It's, it's fun because, you know, you feel like you're in Europe. Um, but they typically get so much snow that they, they rarely even cut the brush. And because they, they get snow early and they get a lot of it. But lately, because of climate change, they're not getting the snow that they used to. They still get more than we do in New Hampshire or Vermont. But, you know, they're, they, I have noticed they're starting to uh, do more work in the summertime, cut the brush, uh, fill in any places that around culverts that may have eroded. And so, so basically what you want is the smoothest possible natural surface, whether it's grass, many places are, you know, covering their, 
trail with wood chips if um you know if it doesn't seem to grow grass well but then you can you can get by with much less snow you can groom with six or eight inches rather than you know 18 inches so those those are a few of the easy things what do you i i guess like how do you advise clients if they're on the fence in terms of snowmaking climate change is obviously a you know it, it it's a concern and it's a concern, you know, when you talk about people, it's like, oh, it's a dying sport because of climate change. You know, I mean, that's that's something that yeah. people are going to have to be thinking about. And, and they're already thinking about it, but more acutely as time time goes on. I know that Crassberry recently has been involved with, you know, over-seasoning or, or uh, snow storage over the snow, summer months and examining how best to do that. And... But I am curious, like, what sort of advice do you give folks when they're yep. thinking about, and maybe it's a public entity where they can do, you know, or not, I mean, you know, private entities can can fundraise, they can do uh, capital campaigns. Um, but what do you, what is your advice in terms of snowmaking and how to kind of stay relevant in the long term? Yeah. Excellent. Another excellent question. Well, you're making and, me feel and, really good here about that. Oh, <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing a great job. Okay. But to, be, to be honest, I, I didn't expect anything less because you guys, uh, oh. you do a good job. Okay, with, uh, thanks. With soccer skiers. Um, so I, I would never um, uh, try to pass myself off as any expert on snowmaking. The, the one thing I say is that I, I have collaborated with people who are experts at snowmaking on a number of different projects. And, uh, you know, there are at least probably a half a dozen people that I would direct clients to if they're interested in snowmaking. And they're the, the good news for, for Nordic is for, for decades, perhaps even a, a generation, there was basically no interest in Nordic for, for a couple of reasons. One is, what you frequently hear from the Alpine side of the world is there's just no money in Nordic. You know, it's just not worth it to us. Um, and the second thing was that sort of from the t technology standpoint, it's a lot harder to make a, a little narrow strip of snow through the woods than it is, you know, some big open um, slope down a mountain so they they you know they become pretty efficient and pretty successful at making snow for alpine areas but nordic has been lagging behind now the good news is they've made remarkable progress i would say in the last decade specifically for for snow making for nordic facilities and one of the outfits that that i've collaborated with most is um, HKD snowmakers there out of um, just outside of Boston, I think either in Weston or Brookline or someplace like that. And they've um, in, in uh, concert with a couple of other outfits. Um, there's an outfit in Lyme, New Hampshire named Snowmatic, and they've made uh, remarkable progress in the technology of, of like nozzles, snowmaking nozzles so that, they can direct the snow much more precisely than it was possible to do even 10 years ago. So uh, a trail like uh, Middlebury's race course at the Reichert uh, Touring Center or Nordic Center in Ripton, um, they, they've got towers out in the woods and, and they can blow snow right onto the trail. It, it, it doesn't blow off you know, a hundred meters off into the woods, they can direct it right into right onto the trail. And it's much more efficient than it used to be in, in, uh, you know, not that long ago. It's still, it's still expensive. And, um, but they can, uh, the, the folks that I mentioned that, um, let's see, um, Mike Hussey, who now manages the, the Middlebury College Snowball and the Reichert Nordic Center, used to work for HKD, so he's very knowledgeable about snowmaking. And he was the one that uh, 
basically designed the snowmaking system. I helped with the design of the reconfigured race course, but together, um, you know, I think they have five kilometers of uh, race course with with uh, machine made snow. Here's here here's a question. Just kind of thinking glo- globally here, and and you mentioned this at the uh, outset of the conversation that you had been you had you know one active project in China and one that's on hold. I'm presuming because of the pandemic. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious because yeah. a lot of people, you know, they're, they'll be hosting, uh, hopefully got our fingers crossed. They'll be hosting the winter Olympics in 2022. Yep. Um, they obviously have, I mean, the amount of disposable income in China yeah. is vastly different than it was 20 years ago. Correct. Um, and, it seems to be, I mean, lots of mainstream media outlets have run stories, and I'm thinking of one from a guy, uh, a fellow who's based here in Bend, uh, who wrote a really good story in the New York Times, oh gosh, maybe a year ago or maybe eight months ago, um, about you know just the evolving ski culture in China. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of curious, like, what has been your experience with that scene, and um, I'm not saying they have unlimited funds, but one can presume that like there's a little more liquid uh, to dump into sports during this time when they'll be hosting the Olympics, and they they want to put on a good show for yeah, the home really. team, not just yeah, not just in 2022, but moving forward. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. pretty clear that you know I think projecting a decade out that they'll probably be a force in the Nordic scene. Um, Absolutely. yeah, what has been your, ex- yeah, I'm just curious, like what's been your experience in terms of, uh, course development there and, um, yeah, what the vibe is like. Yeah. Um, so I, I was recruited by an outfit you might be familiar with, uh, snow engineering or they, they're now, they used to be called snow engineering, but now they're S E group and they've got offices in Burlington and Salt Lake and. I, I think a couple of other places too. They've done a number of resorts in China. And the first one I was involved with was due north of the North Korean border, about 70 Ks. And, uh, and it was just, it's very interesting, very fascinating to be there. Cause first of all, if you, if you didn't know it was a communist country, uh, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't suspect it. Getting off the airplane, sure. go, going through right. the airport in Beijing. There's advertising everywhere. Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of. There's no more uh, military or customs officials or than than you would see in any other airport. You know, in the developed world. And and then once you get to your hotel or you're you're driving to the site. You know, most of the cars you see, the the roads are are packed with cars, and they're they're all Audis and Mercedes and BMWs, and you don't see a lot of Fords and Chevys. They're they're all luxury cars, and and uh, it's uh, it was very remarkable. Well, this this project that that is currently on hold, but I suspect will be be resumed once. There are two things that will have to happen. Of course, the COVID has to come, come under control and we have to get a new administration in this country. But when those two things are resolved, we'll probably go back. They wanted 50 kilometers of, of recreational cross-country trails and a world-class competition venue capable of hosting the Olympics. And, and this is, it's not for the Beijing Games. They're they they just want another venue of that caliber and it's uh the the guys who were working on the alpine facility from SE group they say that that there're going to be 36 ski lifts um the footprint of the of the resort is comparable to Vail Colorado wow okay massive yeah it's it's huge and when i was uh they were sort of, you know, it's a little bit of a dance between us when, when the, the land planners are saying, well, we're going to have a, a village here and we're going to have a village here and we're going to have it, you know, connected by this uh, light rail system. And, and I'm saying, well, you're taking up some of the, 
area I was thinking of using for this competition venue. Oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. Let's see. We can shift, shift this around. I said, well, could I get a start finish area stadium in this area? They said, mm, well, that's kind of where we were hoping to put the parking lot. I said, parking lot. I mean, can, you can put a parking lot anywhere. This is a parking lot for 60,000 oh, cars. Man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking my comment was, well, I don't want to be getting back to my car at four in the afternoon after a day of skiing to that parking lot. Right. Right. But it, but it also, it's interesting because it speaks to the scale that they're thinking about there. Right. It's not like yeah. a little mom yeah. and pop. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a long time in China, gosh, just after Tiananmen. So it was, um, gosh, 91, maybe 90, 91. Um, wow. Back in the day. Uh, yeah. I, my, yeah, I won't go into me, but anyway, uh, I had a no, fast. No, I, I, I'd like to hear more about this. Well, it just was, I mean, you could tell, I mean, well, one is back then there was not a lot of disposable income. I mean, it was still very much like, I was just telling someone this the other day, cause we're obviously wearing masks all the time. It's when I first, you know, I wore a mask all winter. Uh, I was based in Nanjing uh, because yeah. they burned coal. You know, you essentially went and got your briquette of coal and you burned it. So, you know, I'd stopped running and wore a mask all winter because yeah. of bad air quality. But, and this is no mystery, you know, this isn't revelatory, but there was very little disposable income for most people. And there yeah. were lots of people. So like the, it was just very, very dense. And uh, so I know that when they build new infrastructure there, the scale of things is, is difficult for North Americans to kind of wrap their brains around uh, because, you know, at least here out West, you know, there's some, there's some buffer, there's land buffer between yeah. big major cities. So we tend to think that things aren't dense. Anyhow, uh, 36 lifts in a 60,000 person parking lot may sound like a lot to us, but they're probably like, Oh yeah, well, this is what you need That's to right. do to accommodate potential That's users, right. you know? Yeah. It's interesting. My last question is what, you know, nowadays, like you explained a little bit about how you got involved uh, with trail building, which sounds, it sounds more to do with having sort of a, you know, in your brain, a conceptual idea and a breadth of knowledge about like different trails and how they flow than like formal, like I went to landscape architecture school or, you know, I know schools have programs now where you can go and focus on trail design and it can be, you know, communities pay top dollar. I know here in Bend, you know, people pay to have folks come in and lay out a, a real high end mountain yeah. bike trail. Um, yeah. What would you recommend to people who may be listening or reading about you or, or trail design about how to get involved with an endeavor like that? Um, okay. Well, I think, um, and, I, and may, maybe this is a little bit self-serving, but I think it, it was extremely helpful to me to have been a competitor for a long time and to have been able to compete um, basically around the world. So I, I'd seen, you know, and, and you expressed earlier in the, in the conversation, you, you recognize that there is a difference between the trails you remember in the east and the trails that you you may have been skiing uh, in the west and and certainly that's true differences in scandinavia or even uh, significant differences from norway to finland and certainly differences from scandinavia to central europe on uh, the alps um so it it was very very helpful to have been a skier and um have have skied all over the place and had a had a sense of what, um, and you get two or three skiers together and say, well, where's your, where's your favorite place to ski? What was your favorite trail? And, and you start reminiscing and you say, oh yeah, remember that downhill? Wasn't that a hoot? And so you have good feelings or, you know, conversely you say, oh, that freaking climb at such and such a place. I, if I never see that again, it'll be too soon. And so that's helpful. Um, I'm not, I'm not, um, be, partly because of my age and I guess partly because of a lack of interest, I'm not as competent with the technology as I 
probably could be or should be. Now, the good news is I've had some terrific help through the years. So I, you know, I haven't, it hasn't been a huge handicap. But if somebody were to have this as a, a potential career or a potential objective, it would be very helpful and beneficial to um, be, be very, let's say, capable or competent on, you know, some of the mapping programs. And, uh, and the, the, the gal that does my mapping for me now is, is just, uh, and she's, she's an older woman too, but she's been done. She's, she's remarkable in terms of, you know, finding, uh, LIDAR maps for some remote little village somewhere that I, you know, I didn't even know that LIDAR maps existed. And, you know, a day later, she's got me this working map with uh, two foot contours and with the wetlands all mapped on them. And I've never been to the site, but I can also, I can look at the map and say, okay, I think I can get a 5k loop in there. And that's a tremendous advantage um, just in terms of economy of, of time and effort and money. I don't have to make six trips to bend to get a sense of what might be possible for a new competition loop there. I can do a lot of work in advance. And then when I get out there, I say, okay, yeah, we'll confirm this. Yep. This is where we are. And this is a 30 meter climb. And, you know, okay, I didn't know this ledge was here, but we can go around it. That, so it's, I think that kind of technological, um, um, let's say capability is, is very helpful. Um, you, you obviously have to enjoy even thrive on being outdoors and you know that's uh, that was the main reason that this evolved for me is because i didn't want to spend my days in an office you know behind a computer and right 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 that that's true and that's a huge incentive yeah. i know for a lot yeah. of folks it's like yeah, oh, yeah. but but again for given you. your background you know that that's not always, you know, uh, fun and games either. I mean, I've, I've had, I've been diagnosed with Lyme disease twice now because their ticks are a reality and you just, you can't escape that. I mean, no matter how carefully you try to protect yourself or what kind of spray you use, it's pretty much inevitable. If you're spending a lot of time thrashing through the brush, you're going to get, you're going to get it. And, you know, there are days, I don't know what it's like where you are now. It's absolutely beautiful here today. It's just perfect. Nice breeze, warm, clear sky, bright blue. But I spent a lot of I spent a lot of time thrashing through the woods in the rain. And every time you put your foot down on a fallen log or something, you slip. It's there's a lot of it that's you know, I guess you'd say that it's one of the um what do you call it? The career uh or occupational hazards or something right right but but all in all all you know in in the grand scheme of things i feel like i've been very very fortunate and um that just to be able to do what i love to do and be able to make a living at it and and have a sense there are few things that make me feel better than to just show up at at some race uh, where you know nobody knows where I am, and I just overhear the kids talking about what a great time they had um, skiing a course. Yeah, I bet I bet you that is cool to kind of eavesdrop in on on that. Um, well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, and it's it's uh, yeah. I've been like I said, I've been meaning to reach out to you for a while and learn a little bit more about your story and kind of uh, one of the things that. And again, we we spoke about this, but just as kind of you know, the course in your mind's eye, right. As it's, you're kind of envisioning what, what the landscape, uh, is giving you Yeah. in terms of, of course, it's it's cool for me to think about it and then actually kind of hear you talk about like how you go about, you know, having that manifest in the actual physical trail system. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Hey, my, my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation, and we hope you are all well out there.